Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. So, how many of you are named after someone? Maybe a family member or a family friend? Come on. How many of you be named after somebody? My brother's back there. You're named after our dad. You're the third. Uh, all right, there's something significant about a name. Now, my name, believe it or not, is not William. Many think Bill would be William, but it's actually Billy. That's my, my, my legal name. I'm actually named after three preachers. Three preachers. I didn't stand a chance. Several of them went, oh, God love him. I'm named after what my, it was my dad's best friend, uh, Bill Slayton, so hence Billy. And then the guy that my dad surrendered to ministry under was a preacher by the name of Lloyd Adams. So you have Billy Lloyd. And then, of course, my dad, Ramsey, right? Billy Lloyd Ramsey. So when you're named after three preachers, you, you, you know, the die is cast. You know, you're probably going to be tracking down that way. Uh, and, and so, and, and then you have nicknames, right? Now, again, my brother, sister-in-law, my little nephew's here. We're not going to talk about nicknames. because He's got some nicknames he could share with you that would get me in trouble. But I have a few of him that I probably could share about him. It might get him in trouble. How many of you have nicknames that have kind of stuck with you all your life? Scooter, Skippy, Bubba, Sis. You got some of that. Isn't that funny how that works? There's something significant. There's something interesting. There's something uh, important, really, about a name. And we put a lot of thought typically into what we're going to name our kids, right? If you're not going to name them after someone, then you give a lot of thought and, and, and you debate back and forth. Sometimes you, you don't really know. I've known parents that didn't really name the child until the child was born. So, well, we just want to see what it looked like. Maybe we get some epiphany, you know, some impression about what this child could look like. Now, I don't know if you're this way, but I can tell when I encounter someone by what they call me based on what era that I knew them in right? If I knew them in school, then they might call me Billy, right? If I knew them and they know me all my life, they call me Billy Lloyd. I run into some people, hey, Billy Lloyd, I know that. Uh, in my former life at God's other church, they called me Dr. Bill. Sounds like something you get in the mail that's not happy, the Dr. Bill, right? And then out here, out here, I'm just Pastor Bill or I'm Bill, but I can typically tell what someone calls me by and I can tell what era uh, that I met them in or I knew them from. And so names are significant, names are important. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they're actually uh, five top names of 2018 for girls that I've found that I want to share with you in case you're thinking about naming a child or maybe you've named one to see if you're in the zone. Top five, here are the girls, you ready for this? Uh, Olivia. Uh, Amira, Cora, Ava, Charlotte. Huh? Anybody have those names? Anybody named over there? All right, we've got a few of you. You're in the zone. This is your year. Uh, then for boys, top boys' names. You ready for this? Atticus. Who would have thunk it, right? Atticus, Milo, Jasper, Jack, and Asher. You know what wasn't there? Billy Lloyd. I didn't see that anywhere, but anyway, oh well. So th those are the top five names. Well, names are significant. Names are important. Names tend to identify us, and people will remember us oftentimes by our name. But do you have this problem? I know I do. Remembering names. Is that something you're challenged with? That's something I'm challenged with, uh, is remembering names. I mean, I'll run into people all the time, and I hate it when they do you this way, when they go, you don't know who I am, do you? 
That's a terrible thing to say to someone. You don't know who I am. Because I really, I, I know who they are. I can identify a face. I just can't always tie a, tie a name to that face, right? Uh, I even, it's so bad. When I was in college, I took a, a Bill Bright memory course. You know, and it was, uh, he did the identification thing to try to help you, you know, find some features, something about this person, try to help, you know, repeat their name several times to them in the course of the conversation, all these little rules. But when he got down to the core of what his course really taught, I was so bad, I couldn't remember the formula you needed to remember to remember the name. So I just, hey man, hey buddy. Hi, brother. Hey, sis. How are you? God, you know. So that's my uh, that's my go-to. It means I know you, but I may not be able to recall your name. It can be a frustrating thing. But we all we all are remembered by our name. Remember in the Shakespeare play, you ever read about it? And when you were in school, Romeo and Juliet. Remember it? They asked the question, "What is in a name? What's a name?" And then they said that famous line, something like, um, "A rose by any other name would still smell as sweet." Well, that's true, right? Rose is a beautiful name, by the way, but I looked at some other flower names, and and one of the flowers' names is corpse flower. And I can tell you, if a rose was called a corpse flower, it would sell as sweet, uh, be as sweet, but it wouldn't be as popular, do you think? Here's another flower that I found. There's a flower out there called a lungwort. (laughs) Now, how many of you would come home to your sweet other and and say to them, "I, I saw the lungworts and I thought of you? Or you reminded me of these beautiful corpse flowers, right? I mean, it just wouldn't work, right? So a rose is a great name. It, 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 it automatically conjures up these beautiful thoughts of that beautiful flower and most fragrant flower. So there is something significant and important about a name. In fact, I read where a psychologist had studied 15,000 juvenile delinquents and found that those juvenile delinquents who had an unusual sounding name or even a funny name that they got picked on as a child because of their name, get this, they were four times more likely to be in trouble than kids who had an average name. So there is something significant about a name. There is something important about a name. And we've been singing about a name today that is, as the Bible calls, a name that is above every name. And that's really what this series is about. We're going to be talking about this name, the name Jesus. And I look into the Bible and I see that was significant what kids were called and how they were named because oftentimes, not only would the name indicate um, an identity, a name would also indicate the parent's view of what the child uh, potentially could accomplish. They would more or less, if I could use this term, they would kind of prophesy over their children based upon their name. They saw their potential based upon their name. And it's really sad when you think about some of the names that kids in the Bible were called. For example, Jacob. That doesn't mean what it means now. It's a beautiful name now. We mean our church named Jacob, but back in the Bible, you know what the name meant in the Bible? It meant trickster, (laughs) deceiver. Now, who in the world would name their child that? No one would do that. Now, there are some people that have to live down these nicknames like, you know, you'll never amount to anything. Maybe that was put on you when you were a kid. Or you're a loser. Or I I can't believe you're so stupid, right? I mean, there are some names that stick in the minds of children that they had to live down. And oftentimes in the Bible, get, get this, guys, when God encounters people, you know what he does? He changes their name. He sees them and he sees their name and he sees the prophecy that was spoken over them as a child and he says, that's not who you are. 
You know what he did when he encountered Jacob? He changed his name. He changed his name to Israel. You know what Israel means? Doesn't mean loser. It means prince. He said, when I see you, I don't see a loser. I don't see a trickster. I don't see a a con man. When I see you, I see a prince. I see a man with potential. And God always sees not just what we are or what we've been. He sees what we could be. And so he changes the name because the name is significant. The name gives us this identity and even an expectation. We're known by our, our name. I remember when Rebecca in the Bible was giving birth to a child and she was dying in childbirth and the pain of the experience and the bitterness of soul. She wanted to name the child Benoni. Benoni meant child or son of my, of my pain. Child of my sorrow. Some even translated as bitterness. And she passes away. And they tell her, your wife has named this child Benoni, bitterness, son of my sorrow. And Isaac said, I don't want him to carry that name throughout all of his life. He won't be known as Benoni, he'll be known as Benjamin, when Benjamin meant son of my strength. He's not gonna be known for bitterness, he's gonna be known for blessedness. And so again, God looks at a person and he changes their name and gives them a new identity. You go over into the New Testament and here you have Saul of Tarsus breathing out threatenings against the early church, killing Christians, if you will. And when God encounters him on the road to Damascus and Saul looks up into heaven and has a conversion experience on the road to Damascus, God changed his name. Why is that significant? Because the name Saul, it harkened back to the days of the first king of Israel, right? King Saul. So Hebrew mothers would want their sons to be named Saul, many of them, because it would make them think of a strong and powerful leader. And Saul was every bit of that. But when Saul of Tarsus comes along, he's an arrogant man, educated man, gifted man, but an arrogant man. And he's hateful and he's vengeful, but he encounters God. And you know what God says? Your name won't be Saul, the significant one. Your name will be Paul, the humble one. You're not going to be one who will lord over or rule over people. Instead, you're gonna be one who serves people. So God, again, changes the name to indicate the identity and the destiny of his people. And I look into this narrative in Isaiah that we're gonna be looking at, and here you have the names of Jesus, some of the names that he will be known for. And by the way, there are 256 names of Jesus in the Bible. Now, I haven't counted them all, but I'll take their word for it. 256, bread and life and door and shepherd and on and on. He's known by different names because these names indicate not only his identity, but his character. He's known by his his name. And in Isaiah chapter nine, Isaiah the prophet was writing and he was prophesying, which is to foretell or foretell of the coming of the Messiah who would change the world. And when he was writing, he was saying, this one who will be like no other one, this one that God is sending to redeem mankind, to reconnect mankind with God, he will be like no other child that has ever been born. And Isaiah prophesies of the coming of the Messiah. Get this, 740 years before Jesus was born. Now that's getting the birth announcements out a little early, wouldn't you say? And if you have a Bible, look in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six with me for a moment and we're gonna look at this birth announcement. 
And I love the way it opens. It says, for unto us. And I just want to stop there a moment and allow that to kind of wash over you and help you realize that this birth announcement is for us. Jesus came into the world for us. This announcement is universal. It is all-inclusive. There is no one excluded from the impact of the coming of the Messiah. He came into this world for us. I believe God loves us so strongly that if I or you were the only people on the earth to redeem, I think he would have come into the world just for us. In fact, when Jesus was talking about who is qualified to come to the Father, he said, whosoever will, let them come. A lot of times in religion, we try to qualify and quantify who can come to God. Jesus never does that. I love that beautiful hymn that Billy Graham closed all of his crusades with, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Listen, if you ever come to Jesus, you come like you are. You say, I just gotta get my act together, it'll never happen. <laughs> I gotta turn over a new leaf, you won't do it. <laughs> If you come to Jesus, you come the way I came, you come just as you are. And this birth announcement was given to us. It's to everyone. No matter your background, religious, irreligious, it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter your life experience, this Messiah is coming for you, unto us. And mark this phrase, because I'm gonna come back to it, a child is born, unto us. Mark this phrase, a son is given. I'll come back to that. And, mark this phrase, the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name, his name. Isaiah, what will his name be? Well, it's gonna be wonderful. His name will be Counselor. His name will be the Mighty God. His name will be the Everlasting Father. His name is the Prince of Peace. And this morning, we're going to look at this idea that his name is wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Define wonderful as marvelous. You can define wonderful as one of a kind. You can define wonderful as nothing to be compared to it. You go to California, you see the great sequoias, and you'll say, that's wonderful. You go look at the Pacific or the Atlantic, and you look down into the Gulf of Mexico, you enjoy the ocean, you say, man, that's wonderful. You go up into the Rocky Mountains and you enjoy the mountains, you go, man, these, these mountains are, are wonderful. You look at Yellowstone National Park, you know, this is a, this is a wonderful place. What are we saying by that? We're saying there's nothing to be compared to it. This is marvelous, this is incredible. And the first thing Isaiah will write when he's writing about the name of Jesus is, he's indescribable, he's marvelous, he's wonderful. And I want you to think about that a little bit with me this morning and how in which our Lord is wonderful. He's wonderful, first of all, he's wonderful in his humanity, his humanity. Did I, you remember me saying, mark the phrase, a child is born? What's incredible about the Christmas story is the infinite. The God who is infinite became an infant. The God who was with his father who one day stepped from nowhere and stood on nothing and spoke everything into existence and it stays there because he tells it to. That God became flesh. 
In fact, when John writes about this in John chapter one, John says, hey, he's wonderful in his birth. He was God in his birth, and yet he was man in his birth. He says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was God, and the word was with God. So you have this idea that God did not leave off his divinity to take on his humanity. It's called a hypostatic union where the divine takes on the human, where those of us who were formed and were formed in the image of God, God who uh, uh, was uh, uh, infinite, was sovereign, he took on flesh. In fact, on down in John 1, down about verse 14, the Bible says that he tabernacled among us. In other words, he dwelt in a body made of flesh. So think about Jesus this way when we consider his humanity. He was just as much man as though he were never God, but just as much God as though he were never man. As a God, he could touch and heal, and he had insight and wisdom and discernment. He could see the future. He had providential power. But as a man, he would eat and drink and become weary and set at a well to rest. He would cry at the tomb of Lazarus and he would laugh with his friends. He would go to a wedding and celebrate. He was a man and yet he was God. He was the God man. And the wonder of it all is seen in his humanity. Jesus Christ, the very son of God, literally, ladies and gentlemen, he became one of us. So I think about the fact that this great God, our Lord and our Savior, he is great in his humanity. He had a wonderful birth. Isaiah would prophesy about the birth of our Lord in Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14. He said, behold, uh, this will be a sign. A virgin will conceive. Now go with me on this. I would imagine Isaiah with quill in hand, writing, and all of a sudden he hears this impression of the Holy Spirit, write, there's a sign, and the sign is a virgin will conceive. And I'm sure Isaiah said, wait a minute, gosh, it's been a long day. Holy smokes, I need to put my quill down. Man, I need to just drink a little more of that holy water. I think I've got my eyes, or I don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, man, he realizes, for a minute there, God, I thought you said a virgin would conceive. I mean, you know that's a biological impossibility, right? I mean, you, you would know that being God and all. And so maybe he starts to write a young woman, a young woman, shall, and, and it's as though the hand of God stopped him. And he said, a young woman giving birth is not a sign. Young women have been getting birth, giving birth since the beginning of time. How's that a sign? <laughs> a sign is when a virgin gives birth. There's your sign. <laughs> That's unusual, it's biological impossibility. Yep, God's pretty good at working out these biological impossibilities. And so he writes this idea that one day the sign will be a virgin, will conceive and bear a son who will be the savior of the world. You fast forward into the Christmas story, over into the Gospels, you remember the angel visits Mary and remember the, 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 when he tells her she's gonna have a baby, she says, it's not possible. I've never been with someone else. I've never been with them. It's not possible. I can't give, it's not. He said, you don't understand. I'm good at working out these biological impossibilities. You'll be overshadowed by the most high and you will conceive as a virgin. You will conceive and bear a son. His name is Jesus. He'll be the savior of the world. And 740 years before that happened, Isaiah wrote about it. And when I look at his life, he's wonderful in his humanity because he's wonderful in his birth. Why is that so wonderful? 
Not just the miraculous uh, reality of his birth, but when you think about the fact that it, it made salvation possible. What do I mean by that? Everyone since the time of Adam, we're all born as sons of Adam, right? We're sons and daughter of Adam. Uh, we all hail from a drunk sailor named Noah and a crooked farmer named Adam. <laughs> That's all in our family trait. And because we're the sons and daughters of Adam, guess what we inherited? We inherited a sin nature. We're sinners by nature, we're sinners by birth, and we become sinners by choice. Why? Because as Hebrew said, there's some pleasure in sin. I used to hear old preachers say, oh, there's no pleasure in sin. You know, I'm thinking, yeah, you're not doing it right. <laughs> there's pleasure in sin or we wouldn't be doing so much of it. Now, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying, let's be honest about it, right? And so the point I'm, I'm suggesting to your heart this morning is the fact it's easy for us to sin because it's in our nature. The Bible says in Proverbs, it's as easy to sin as it is for the sparks of a fire to fly upward. Effort, I sin, I don't know about you, I sin effortlessly. I can think a negative thought before I think a positive. I, I can think about a, a bad situation before I can think about a good one. I have to guard my thoughts and guard my heart because my nature, I have a propensity and a proclivity toward a sinful nature. It's just who I am. Now I've got another nature living within me that's a spiritual nature now that I know Jesus that wars against the old nature and I've learned the nature I nurture is the nature that wins. The dog you say sick him to is the one that's gonna win. So I try to sick the right nature every day. But I'm just suggesting to you that this old nature was an inherited nature. Uh, when David was writing even about our kids, he said we were born, get this, speaking lies. Now that sounds harsh. But when you think about it, it's true. You get that little booger, that little baby, love on that little baby. You get them to sleep, they're warm, they're dry, they're fed, and you creep in there and you lay that little baby down at night, you try to walk out of that room quietly, and just as that door comes to a close, they start crying. And you rush back in there and you check them, particularly if it's your first baby. You check them, and uh, if, you know, if it's a second or third baby, maybe you let them cry a little bit, but you run back in there eventually and you check them over and you realize, man, this baby, there's nothing wrong with this baby ain't dying, this baby's lying. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with this little booger. This baby's fine, it's training me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hitting the click every time I respond here. And the point I'm making is, look, we don't have to teach our kids how to lie, we have to teach them how to tell the truth. I don't know about you and your childhood, but I was prone to tell my mom and dad a little lie every now and then. You know, pin it on my little brother, blame my older sister. How, how it was easy. He said, how'd you do that? It was pretty easy. <laughs> it's my nature. I'm good at that. What am I saying? I'm saying had Jesus been born as a son of Adam, he would have had a sinful nature. Therefore, all of the type of the Old Testament that the offering that was brought to God that would, that would, that would appease God's uh, justice on sin, the offering had to be without spot or blemish. You brought the best of the flock. You offered the best without blemish, without spot. Why? Because it indicated the coming of the Messiah that would be without sin. He became sin on the cross, but he knew no sin. He did no sin. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. When John saw him on the banks of the Jordan, he said, here's God's sacrifice who will take away the sins of the world. So having a virgin birth means he was born not of this world without a sin nature. He could then be God's substitute, substitute sacrifice for us. He could bear our sin. So he had a wonderful birth. He had a wonderful life. 
You think about his life in Acts chapter 10, the Bible said he went about doing good. Wouldn't you like that to be said about you? Everywhere they went, they just did good. They did good to the people they did business with. They did good to the people they tried to help. They were a good neighbor. They were a good friend. They, but, but if you're honest about it, we all fall short. We all have those moments when we look away or we have a bad day or, you know, we have the, we, we could not say concerning ourselves at every moment of our life we go about doing good. But that was said of Jesus. In fact, the guys who worked the closest with him in Mark 7, verse 37 said, this guy does everything well. Everything he does is well. He's wise, he's smart. He doesn't hurt people's feelings, says the right thing when it needs to be said, how it should be said. He does all things well. And man, the capstone of his life was when he was brought to trial before Pilate. And Pilate's trying to find some just cause to put him to death. I mean, the Jews wanted to crucify him. The religious order of the day said he's, he's, it's blasphemous for him to claim to be God. And Pilate said, I don't care. Maybe he is a God. I'm a polytheist. I'll put him on the mantle with the rest of them. I don't have a problem with that. So he was looking for some just cause to put him to death. So you have in Luke 23, you have Pilate sending out what would have been the equivalent of FBI, CIA, the top investigators of the then known world to go out and try to find something that Jesus did during the course of his lifetime that was wrong. Now let me ask you a question this morning. <laughs> if the FBI, CIA, and all the intelligence uh, agencies of our powerful nation were to go out with you as the target and try to find something, just something that you've done wrong, something that means you are less than perfect, how long would it take for them to find something? Let's, let's back it up. Since you've been in this room. <laughs> I mean, the thought of foolishness, the Bible says, is sin. And who among us have not had at least one foolish thought since we've been in here? What's my point? My point is, it wouldn't take anybody very long to find some things that you and I have said wrong, done wrong, acted wrong, thought wrong. I mean, follow us around a little bit and check out the little road ragers that we do. I mean, all that stuff. It wouldn't take them long to figure out something we did that was wrong. And yet, when Pilate comes back, Luke 23, 4, here's what he says I find nothing, no fault. Listen, that could never be said of anyone. No person stepped up and said, you know, he got to me on a business deal. No one said he betrayed my confidence. No one to say, well, he took advantage of me here, or he hurt my feelings there, or, you know, he, he did this or did, he kicked the cat, he, he, he dog cussed the dog. No, none of that. Pilate said, I, guys, I find nothing wrong with him. He had a wonderful birth, a wonderful life. Had a wonderful ministry. The Old Testament speaks of three offices. There's the office of a prophet, and the office of a priest, and the office of a king. And Jesus beautifully fulfills all offices in his ministry. As prophet, the Bible says he came not to do away with the law, but fulfill the law. He came in fulfillment of prophecy. As a priest, he became the sacrifice. And the Bible says concerning him, he ever lives to make intercession for us. And the writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet he without sin. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. When the wise men came looking for him in Matthew, here's what they ask, where is he who is born king? 
They didn't ask where is he who's born to be king. He said he's born. He was king in the manger. <laughs> he's God, large, in charge. He's wonderful in his humanity, hurriedly. Secondly, he's wonderful in his humility. His humility. You remember the second phrase I told you to mark? A child is born speaks of his birth, his humanity. The second thing, a son is given, speaks of his humility. In fact, in Philippians chapter two, when Paul was writing about it, Paul said that Jesus humbled himself. Get this, humbled himself. There's our word. Wonderful in his humility. He humbled himself to do what? He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Never let anyone convince you that the coming of Jesus into the world to go to the cross to die was somehow an afterthought on the part of God. It wasn't. Never let anyone convince you that Jesus was a victim on the cross. He was no victim. He said, I freely lay my life down. No one can take my life from me, and I have the power to raise my life back up again. He came of his own volition. In fact, when you read Revelation 13, the Bible says, get this, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before God ever created anything, they knew if we do this little experiment down there on earth called mankind, and if we give them a choice and we stick a tree in the garden and we say, you can have all access to everything but that one, and we give them a choice, if we do it, they're gonna choose against us. And so if we wanna have fellowship with this creation called mankind, we have to have a way back for them. And the only thing that can justify a holy and righteous God would be a sacrifice. Somebody has to pay a price, a penalty for the sins of mankind. The Bible says the soul that sins will die. And Jesus stepped forth and said, I'll be the sacrifice. I'll do it. He came into the world knowing that his ultimate mission would be to go to a cross and bear on his body our sin. The Bible said he who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became everything that I am so that I could become everything that he is. It's called the doctrine of imputation, meaning upon me I imputed my sin on Jesus, put it on his account, and he imputed, he put on my account righteousness. It's a great exchange. He took everything wrong with me and gave me everything that's right about him. And the Bible speaks of his coming, he has a son, he's a son that is given. The famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, a son given, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Can I tell you something about salvation? All the heavy lifting is done. Some of you are stumbling because you think the way to God is you gotta spell it uh, D-O. I've gotta do something, turn over a new leaf. I gotta get my act together. I gotta make amends, I gotta make some things right. Listen, as I said a minute ago, if you come to Jesus, you realize you don't spell salvation D-O, you spell it D-O-N-E. <laughs> it's done. Jesus said, tetelestai on the cross, it is done, it is finished, it is complete. He was great in his humility. Here's the last one and we're done. He's wonderful in his honor. Wonderful in his honor. What do I mean by that? The Bible says, remember the, the third phrase I told you to mark? And the government shall be on his shoulder. Now let me tell you what that means. <clears throat> I'm gonna tell you probably more than you wanna know, so, but just stick with me on this. I don't know if you're interested in eschatology in times, but what that literally means, the interpretation of that is a, an interpretation that means that during the millennial reign of Jesus on the earth, the government finally will rest on his shoulders. 
that one day everyone will look to him as the final authority and ruler of the world. Now again, that is a prophecy concerning a millennial reign of Jesus. Millennial is a thousand. A millennial reign, a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. Now again, I don't know where you are with your eschatology, but play along with me as I close. I am what we would call when it comes to eschatology, I'm a preemie, I'm a preemie, let me explain that. <laughs> I'm a pre-tribulational premillennialist. Now don't let me ask that scare you. What I mean by that is pre-tribulational means I believe there will be, as the Bible talks about, a great tribulation period on the earth, about seven years. Prior to that tribulation, there is an event called the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, One day the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. Those who have died will be raised first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. The idea of caught up is rapture. We'll be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So one day at the rapture, the church, Christ's followers, will be evacuated from the earth, and in our absence, there will be a great tribulation period that will happen on the earth. So I'm pre-tribulational. I don't think we'll go through the tribulation. Now there's some people who are mid-tribulational. They think about three, three and a half years in, then the Lord comes. Some people are post-tribulationalists. They believe that the church will go all the way through the great tribulation. In fact, in the Civil War, when they wrote the song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, they were writing it believing they were going through the great tribulation. The verse, he is trampling out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. They thought they were going through the great tribulation. And if you had lived in that time, you might have thought that too. But we obviously know they were wrong. <laughs> so there are people who are pre-trib like me, who are mid-trib, and who are post-trib. And then you have the millennial reign of Christ where he does return with his own. The first coming is for his own, the second coming is with his own, and he will then establish a thousand year reign on the earth. That's when the, there'll be peace in every valley. That's when the lion lays down with the lamb. That's when John Lennon's song Imagine makes sense. That's when all of that stuff <laughs> happens on the earth. It happens during that period of time. Now, there are some people who are, like me, who are premillennialists who believe Jesus will take us out and then bring us back. And then there are some people who are postmillennialists. They think things are just gonna get better and better and we're just gonna usher in the coming of the Lord. Now, there aren't many of those around anymore. <laughs> I look in 2 Timothy chapter three, the Bible says evil men and seducers wax worse and worse. It doesn't say better and better. I'm not negative, I'm a biblical opt optimist. I've read the last chapter of the last book. We win. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's some crazy stuff that's gonna happen along the way. And so there are people who are premillennial and postmillennial, and then there's a third group, they're called amillennialists. Amillennialists. Now, when you, put, uh, when you put ah in front of anything, you negate the word. For example, a museum, we get that idea from, from muse. Muse is to think. But if you take a, the word muse and you put ah in front of it, you have ah muse, which means to be made not to think. <laughs> when you are amused, you kind of check out and you're not really thinking. So you put ah in front of a word, it negates the word. So to be an ah millennialist means no millennial. I don't think it's gonna happen at all. So there are pre, mid, post. There are pre, post, ah when it comes to that. I'm a premium, <laughs> pre-tribulation. Pre I say all of that that you care less about. You're not gonna beat the Presbyterians or the cafeteria now, but uh, bear with me for a minute. I say all that to say the interpretation of that text is during that millennial reign when Jesus Christ will have the governments of the world on his shoulder. And can I tell you at the end of that reign, uh, uh, reign did you know there's a prophecy that says at that time, every knee will bow. 
every tongue will confess. Do you know there's going to be a time when he summons Madeline Murray O'Hare and everyone who lived like her and died like her to, to, before him? And you know what they're going to do? They're going to bow their head, they're going to bend their knee, and they're going to confess Jesus is Lord. They're going to do it. It's going to happen. So I'm just suggesting to you that the interpretation of this idea of the government on his shoulder is a, a, a millennial reign of Jesus on the earth. But here's the application. When you study scripture, remember there's only one interpretation, but there are many applications. Uh, Peter warns us, he said, there's no scripture given of any private interpretation. This is where you get in trouble. Be sure when you read the Bible, you're, you're interpreting it correctly. Ask yourself, what does it mean then? What does it mean now? What does it mean to me, right? Because when you, when you don't interpret scripture correctly and people take a little bit of Bible here and a little bit of Bible there and a little bit of Bible over there and put all that together to form a theological position, that's how cults come about. You can bend the Bible and make it say anything. I can show you a verse that says, uh, Judas went out and hanged himself. Hold on to that verse. I can show you another one that says, go thou and do likewise. And then the third one says, and whatever you do, do quickly. Well, I've just given you a biblical theory for something that's incredibly insane. What am I saying? I'm saying if you don't interpret scripture properly, you'll be way out in left field somewhere. So there is the interpretation of the text. But there are many applications. And you apply the Bible with this rule, that as long as this application doesn't violate the interpretation or other biblical principles, then it's a viable application. One other illustration. When I was in a kid growing up in my dad's uh, mom's church, we had what they called back then flannel graph. Any of you boys and girls know what flannel graph is? Flannel graph was before technology came around. It was little cut out pictures that were put on a cloth board, images of biblical characters, and we learned from that. It's a real thing, Google that, uh, flannel graph. And we would learn from it. And I remember one of our teachers had this, uh, had this image of Jesus who looked like he might have toured with uh, Grateful Dead, but anyway, he, he was, uh, <coughs> He was, he was knocking at a door, and, and the teacher said, boys and girls, Revelation says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open unto him, I will come into fellowship with him and he with me. She says, this is Jesus, and he's knocking on your heart's door. Well, that's a beautiful application of that text. It's not the interpretation. The interpretation in Revelation is a church that Jesus is on the outside of his own church knocking to get in. <laughs> He's saying, I'm standing at the door, knocking, trying to get in my own church. You're doing ministry without me. You're, you're, you're doing ministry without anointing. You're doing ministry without the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's knocking, trying to get back into the church. But the application can be used that he's knocking on the heart's door. You see how that works? So I'm saying the application of the government on his shoulders is simply this. It's when I transfer the control of my life to God. The government of my life is now on his shoulders. The name Jesus means a saving one. The name Christ means the atoning one. It speaks of his priestly ministry. The name Lord means the leading one. And I'm just suggesting you this morning that some of you are carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders this morning. Some of you came into this room carrying burdens God never designed you to carry. What an amazing thing the day you simply resign yourself from the ruler of your universe <laughs> and you shift that responsibility from your shoulders to his. He says, take my yoke and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He said, I got this. Whatever you're carrying, he can carry it. Whatever you're trying to figure out, he's already got it figured out. Listen to me, there's no problem he can't handle. There's no sin he can't forgive. There's no burden that he can't lift. And when you finally realize that, you know what you'll walk away saying? 
<laughs> He's wonderful. No one like him. He's marvelous. Let's pray. Father, thank you today that you are a wonderful God. You are marvelous in all that you do. You've brought us here today and you've drawn people to see this service online who need to understand that. And I pray for those who are trying to carry these burdens that you haven't designed them to carry that this morning, they would realize you came into this world to be the sin forgiver, that you exist today to be the problem solver. You're available to them today to be the burden lifter. So I pray this morning we'll simply step back and say, God, I give this to you. This is too much for me. It's too heavy. It's too hard. I trust you. For those who have never called on you, those who have never trusted you, I pray this would be the moment when they just humble their heart and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Be my savior. And for those who have trusted you, Lord, but they're not really partnering with you, may this be the day when they say, Lord, I truly surrender all to you. And finally, for those who need someone to pray for them before they go, I pray as soon as I dismiss, they'll make their way here to the front and allow one of our workers to spend just a few moments to encourage them and pray for them. Father, I pray you'll watch over us, make this a productive, wonderful week. And may we walk out of here realizing his name is wonderful. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.